Welcome to Too Deep, Hokies Under the Influence. My name is Pete Berthod, and my co-host is Robbie Dowling. Virginia Tech is heading to the Belk Bowl, Robbie. We also have a new defensive coordinator, and it's actually the beginning of early signing period. We've got a lot to talk about today, man. How you feeling? I'm feeling feeling pretty good. We uh, It's going to be interesting about the Belk Bowl uh, against a, a, a formidable matchup, a weird matchup, but... Yeah, for uh, sure. yeah. Uh, Fuente definitely gave them a lot of props during the presser, and I'm excited. Yeah, man. Why don't you give us a cheers and get us kicked off? So, cheers to a couple things. Obviously, it is the early signing period, which has really just become the signing period, and we brought in a bunch of new Hokie uh, signees that are going to be joining the team, so big uh, cheers to them, and then also cheers to some of our departing coaches, Uh, Charlie Wiles being the most notable, Mitchell burden overall charlie wiles is it's going to be sad to see him go Uh, much like bud has been with the program for a long time i think he's been here 24 years coaching the defensive line and done a great job over that time period so a huge uh thank you to him for his time with the vt program and i hope him the best i think he's out there looking for his next new gig and i hope he he finds it and he ends up at a good spot Cheers. Yeah, a lot happened since our last podcast. We talked about coming on when the bowl announcements came out, and that was the same day Hamilton got hired. And I was actually grateful we weren't able to record that night just because there was more and more news coming out about the coaching hires, and now we have a couple new guys on the staff, and we can talk about all of it tonight, so that's cool. And uh, the signing period is a bonus for today, too. Just a little bit more coverage for our, for our listeners. We're going to get into the signing class. But let's start with the news and notes. First and foremost, let's talk about that college football playoff poll. It was number one, LSU, number two, Ohio State, number three, Clemson, and number four, Oklahoma. And that was because Oregon crushed Utah and Oklahoma outlasted Baylor in overtime, allowing Oklahoma to get in. I know that you wanted to see Utah in there. What are your thoughts on the playoff four? It dashed all my hopes and dreams. It would have been so beautiful to have Utah in there. Who knows? They probably would have gotten destroyed, but I, a lot of programs will, and there's a chance that Oklahoma does as well. The battle for first and second was really the battle to not play Clemson, and I really do think that Clemson has a I think they have arguably the best chance of winning the way that they're playing at such an elite level, even the way LSU's playing, even the way Ohio state's playing. I, I stick with kind of Braden Gall's call on this whole thing. I still would pick Clemson going into it, but I think the rankings came out and they were correct. LSU had the toughest schedule. Clemson should have been number three just because they hadn't played anybody and Ohio state fit in between is where I come out and burrow just won the Heisman, the the greatest Heisman results that have ever happened in Heisman history, whether it's number of votes or percentage of votes. So I think it ended up the way that it probably should have. If I'm LSU, I am nervous about Clemson. They look real good. Um, And I say LSU only because I feel like in my head they're the favorite. But yeah, Ohio State's not even favored against Clemson. And they obviously had a much tougher schedule and people think they could be number one. And then the line comes out and Clemson's favored. Uh, 
So <laughs> it shows you how much respect Vegas and how how much respect the population must have for Clemson to come out like that. And I I think they might win it all again too. It, the the one thing about Clemson that I thought this year was that their defense was would take a huge step back because they lost their entire defensive line and a couple other key guys. And they've been dominant. Now they haven't played the offenses or just the teams in general that LSU and Ohio State have. So I'm very interested to see how they play, how their defense plays, because you know that Lawrence and T. Higgins and ETN are going to put up points and yards. But how is that defense that was revamped this year and looks amazing against the ACC? How will they play against Ohio State and then LSU? They didn't just replace a defensive line. They replaced arguably one of the best defensive lines in the past five years, if not longer. It was, those guys were unbelievable. And yet they did it. They they replaced it and it looks very good, if not, you know, to elite. And last year was beyond elite is kind of how I would characterize it. But Dabo's out there playing the uh, undercard once again, because they're number three and... It's so bad when you give him that card. He just, he loves it. And even if people don't give it to him, he just takes it. It's been funny to hear him say how much they're disrespected when everyone knows how good they are. They're basically, you know, a second Alabama. They're, they're, they're the evil empire. They're the team that's won two out of the last three national titles or whatever. And they crushed Alabama in the national title just last year. But Dabo did make a point that no team has ever started AP number one, gone undefeated, and then finish number three. Like it's never happened. So he does have a point. Like they, and but it's a very uncharacteristically weak year, and they didn't play a very tough schedule at all when it came down to it. And that's no fault of their own. That's just the way it shook out. But, but when they play Ohio State, we will find out very quickly if they're up to the task. Interestingly, Ohio State struggled at the beginning of that Wisconsin game. Yeah, and I think to that end, uh, on Clemson. They did schedule Texas A&M, right? And you can say what you will. And they have an SEC school in South Carolina. That they play every year. So that's less scheduling and that's more just the way that it works out. So everything lined up for them to have a very poor strength of schedule. Yeah. Everybody else did their part to make that as bad as possible. You can only put so much blame on them because it could have been a, a, a pretty decent out-of-conference schedule otherwise. And we'll, we will stop talking about Clemson in a second here. But it was kind of fun watching them throttle our rival UVA in the ACC championship game. And a small part of me was very grateful not to be there while watching that game. <laughs> yeah, that would have been disastrous for anybody that went into that game. UVA started off okay they kept it was at the beginning was fine and then clemson just went to town and scored almost at will on every drive yeah i think the championship will end up being lsu and clemson and that will just be so much fun to watch and seeing what joe burrow can do against that defense and what clemson can do against an lsu defense while that got better throughout the year had its struggles like that could be a championship game full of fireworks and i hope it comes to fruition let's move on to vt basketball before we go full football for the rest of the time we lost to duke a couple weeks ago but i don't think we've done a podcast since then we were winning at the half 
Um, but it slipped away in the second half. Only five of 20 from three. You're not going to beat Duke shooting like that. And just seven points from Landers Nolly. We didn't really get out-rebounded, but we had 14 turnovers to their seven. We followed that up by beating Chattanooga and Gardner-Webb, which are not good teams, but they're not the complete dumpster fire teams at the bottom like Maryland Eastern Shore, who we're going to play in a couple of weeks here. So we have two more out-of-conference games, and it's VMI and Maryland Eastern Shore. And then we start against UVA on January 4th, ACC play for the rest of the season. It's been interesting. We start started better than we should have, probably. And then we've played a little bit worse than we should have in some games. And it is the surest sign of a youthful program. And I say program because we just saw it happen with the football team as well. The, you, you tend to not always have your A game ready and you tend to outperform and then underperform at times that you wouldn't really expect it. None of this, I think, should be a surprise to anybody, but everybody got their hopes up a little bit when the Michigan State game happened. Yeah, and I do think that they're ahead of schedule of where they should be, essentially, and Mike Young's doing a great job. But this team, that Clemson win, I think, gave us a little bit more lift and then you, you tack on the Michigan State win. I mean, Clemson's not a very good team. They're, they're like the second worst team in the ACC if you look at the Ken Palm. And we didn't necessarily think that was going to be the case at the beginning of the year. Michigan State is still very good, but Mike Young had time to prepare for that game. And they executed a game plan that was perfect, and we beat them. So full credit for that. But I do think this team is going to have its struggles once we start playing are 20 this year ACC games. Yes, they they increased it from 18 to 20 for this season. So I'm excited about ACC play, and I'm excited about that UVA game, but uh, I'm not sure what kind of record to expect for us this year in the ACC. We are 15th nationally in three-point percentage, so that's pretty sweet, and we're going to need that to stay up at that 40% mark to maybe get to 11 wins and it can, we can go over 500 in ACC play. Don't you think? I think we can. It'll be, if you look at UVA and watch some of their games recently, they've been struggling in, in a serious way with some of their play. And they're probably one of our more formidable opponents that we're going to, going to face. You know, UNC the teams are struggling a bit in the ACC. If there's a gear to have be down and be rebuilding, in the ACC, this is the year to do it. Agreed. So to your to your point, I think, and granted, a lot of those teams may develop very quickly and uh, that could change. But right now, it's it's a good time for us to be building from, you know, ver- almost from ground up. Yeah. UNC just lost Cole Anthony for four to six weeks. He was their star freshman recruit. Duke is obviously going to be a top five team probably all season, despite the loss to Stephen F. Austin. Uh, but Wake and Georgia Tech and Clemson and Miami, um, there's a lot of teams kind of bouncing around the bottom. Even Syracuse isn't very good this year. Uh, so we're we're going to have our chances for wins. Uh, I'm very curious if we could get to 500, though. That, that, that should, would be a very good mark for this team, a very good mark. Caleb Farley announced that he is coming back to Virginia Tech for his redshirt junior season. That is awesome news. He's one of the best cornerbacks in the country, according to Pro Football Focus. 
And if you watched him the last two years, you saw him grow and get so much better. He was second team All-American, according to The Athletic. <laughs> that is, that's amazing. I, I mean, there only that's two corners or, you know, two corners per team. And he's on the second team of all the corners in the country. That's amazing. It's incredible. Him coming back is such a boon for this team. We, a lot of people thought if anybody was going to make their jump to the NFL, it was going to be him. Just how highly ranked his was. And it was on pro football focus. A lot of people give them heat for some of their stats. It just was, it wasn't just like one stat or two stats. He led in like three or four different types of stats that they tracked throughout the, the year. I was, um, I was floored when he decided to come back because I just prepare myself for the worst and I couldn't be more excited to see him back in a hockey uniform. And I think it speaks volumes to what his expectations are for the returning production of this program. Yeah. He was third team on pro football focus, all American. Like I said, second for athletic. And if you look at Jermaine Waller, he didn't make any of the all American teams, but his stats on pro football focus were also great in several key categories. Those two guys going forward have a chance to be a, a great combo and, and a shutdown combo next year. I, I can't wait to see them again. Brian Hudson made freshman All-American second team per the athletic and pro football focus. Tavion Robinson was first team punt returner on pro football focus. Pollard was second team at PFF. And Doug Nestor was honorable mention on PFF. So a lot of our young players, freshmen, were getting accolades for that all-freshman team, honorable mention, that kind of thing. So that it's great to see. We knew that we had a lot of good freshmen on this team, but it's nice to see them get recognition from a company in PFF that does a lot of analysis on how they're actually playing down in and down out. The last note I had was season tickets went on sale today. I know... Rob, you've had season tickets for a couple years. Will you be renewing your season tickets for next year? Yes. Yes, uh, absolutely. I, I've already been speaking about it, but I'm pumped for the Penn State game next year. That, that alone could get me... I would probably do season tickets anyway, but that alone, that game has just got me extremely excited about the offseason and seeing that hype start to build that people haven't really been latching onto yet. But... Absolutely. Yeah, I think I'm going to be getting season tickets too. It's not confirmed yet, but I think just because of the Penn State game and and my family ties to that university, uh, I want to make sure that I have a couple of tickets at least to the Penn State game. But it's also one of our best home schedules in years. We get Miami at home. We obviously get Penn State at home. We get UVA and then BC and Georgia Tech, which just the first three games I named are are worth the season ticket price, which I think it's like 350 bucks. You have to put a donation down on top of that. I think the minimum is like $25 and it that ratchets your seat location depending on how much. And um but I expect there to be a lot of season ticket sales for the 2020 because it's a combination of best home schedule in years and best roster in years. And Penn State fans buying season tickets just for the ticket price of that that game I'll say it here. That game, I guarantee by the time you hit like full sales for it is going to be, assuming we don't lose the first game of the year or Penn State doesn't do something crazy, that's going to be 150 to a $200 ticket by itself. 
for just yeah. that game. Uh, so uh, for me, it's kind of an it's a no brainer that people would would sign up for that, and I wouldn't be surprised to see what we've seen other happen at other schools where you have opposing fan bases buying season tickets just to get a one game. The Notre Dame game last year was 125 face value, correct? Yeah, I think that I think that was right. I wonder if the face would be higher than that for Penn State. Probably not. I'm guessing it would probably be 125. Yeah, I think that's probably the right price for it. If I was priced, I would price it higher because Penn State is a lot easier to get to to us and there's a lot more Penn State kind of alumni and things like that in the area than I think there are Notre Dame and I know Notre Dame is a national brand so but I think it could I think it could sell better than the Notre Dame game by far just given I mean even you I mean you got you got family down here and you're you're or you're down here and you have family from there and you're already thinking about it yeah and- people are definitely talking about it. I was with some buddies last week and we were all talking about Penn State and Airbnbs and hotel rooms and stuff. And so it, it's on people's minds. People are very much excited about that game. It's funny, though, if it's a $125 face, and that's probably the minimum it would be, that's more than a third of the entire season ticket price, which is pretty wild. Yeah, that's right. All right, let's get into this early signing period. And it's really just one day. Everyone that's going to sign, for the most part, signs today. There are situations where a kid might wait until, I guess, Friday is the last day of the early signing period. It's three days long. And then the actual signing day is that first Wednesday in February. But 80% of the guys, I think, sign today for the for the 2020 recruiting class. So this is essentially the real signing day now. And and the second one is to fill an occasional need or like a late bloomer. And you'll see certain three-star guys like start to be recruited like a five-star guy because there's so few still out there. Um, but I thought we had a very strong finish considering where this class was just a week ago. We had a very big recruiting weekend last weekend. And that was just after we lost Tyreen Powell to Rutgers. And Tyreen Powell, I believe, was the highest rated recruit in the 247 composite in the class before he decommitted. And right after that, I went online to check where our class sat. And we were at number 95 nationally. And I I said on Twitter, like, that is just shocking to see. Yeah, absolutely. And you are much more in tune with this. And you've been much more energetic, I would say, than I have uh, (laughs) about this. Uh, both to the positive um, and to the the negative and in, in how it shows a little bit of chink in the armor in the program. I do think that there's probably, I don't like going through each individual person as much as I want to kind of talk about the narrative of the program. And I think there's probably four or five thread lines that I picked out that gave me a sense of, how we got here, what this class is, what it could be, and those sorts of things. Yeah, I guess I'll just start from the most recent, just about this past weekend and and the slew of recruits we've gotten since. Because we've gotten five commitments since Sunday. That includes Moore, Beatles, Wooten, Penne, and the big one today, Alec Bryant, the four-star defensive end from Texas. And there was a lot of tweets this week about Texas 2VT. Hashtag TX2VT. Uh, It was all over the place. And it's funny because up until today, 
we had no one from Texas to VT in, in almost 15, 20 years. Uh, it, it's kind of hilarious that uh, that's the way it went down because everyone's like, this is a movement, whatever. Right. But the biggest person in that movement is a 2021 commit, the quarterback to Marius Davis. And that kind of started this. But we got Wooten and we got Bryant, two Texas kids. And we've had guys from Texas. We had Michael Brewer, but like guys out of high school from the state of Texas coming to Virginia Tech, it hasn't happened. It, it, it's it's very, very rare. So I, I was pumped to just see the finish. What were you thinking when we got those few commitments on Sunday and then into today? I thought we finished strong. I I thought, you know, we got the, the grad transfer Herbert from Kansas and he's a three-star grad transfer, but the guy runs like like the wind there's film online i think hokey fireman originally posted it of them in the bc game of just how talented he is so and that's outside of just the the recruiting class because he's a he's a transfer in the momentum over the past week and a half for in i won't say dire position we were in fuente's press conference i thought was very unique in the way that he addressed the class. And he said he wanted to be methodical. We moved slower. We didn't act on people. We, we tried to take some people that were under the radar. He knew it was going to be a very small class. Uh, And he also knew something that I don't think a lot of people have talked, talked about, or at least I haven't seen people talk about people, kids these days, guys these days want to come in and want to have a chance at starting there is no team in the country that you probably have less chance of starting at than Virginia Tech next year, just in terms of what we're returning. People want to be able to have a chance to come in. And I'm not saying that they don't. I'm just saying that the bar is going to be so high because of how much that we return. There's not a lot to fill in there except for backup positions or just being that good that you can beat somebody out. And then there's always the argument of, well, if you're good, you want to go up against the best and that whole narrative. We're not exactly there. We're not Ohio State. We're not Alabama. We're not Clemson. And if anybody thinks we recruit that way, then you're crazy. So the guys that we're recruiting want to see an avenue to see the field if they can. And we don't offer that this year. And we have a very small class. So I'm not trying to justify where we were. And We can get into where we fell out in the final rankings but those those were two of the thread lines that I saw, and we finished strong, which I thought was really positive. Yeah, it was a salvaging that had to take place this past week because it was unbelievably bad. Ninety fifth in the country is unacceptable, regardless of size. Um, the per recruit rating was very low, much lower than the last three classes we've had. It was not a good class, and. You have to say that with the caveat. I'm not disparaging any of the players individually. It just, on the whole, you can't have 10 sleepers. You have to have some guys that is not the diamond in the rough. That you can just be like, that's a dude. He's a four-star. Let's let's go. You know what I mean? Like, not all of, not every single guy can be, our evaluation is just that much better than every other single school and, and program and website out there. So, it was disappointing to see the number where it was, but I think we kind of had a feeling that we were going to get a bunch of recruits in the door. I didn't think it was going to be this good. We got up to 15. Beatles, Wooten, and Bryant are all pretty high-level recruits, at least for this class this year. And there's a bunch of things that went into the fact that we were so low to begin with. We missed out on some guys that we wanted. The talent pool 
in Virginia in particular was very low in terms of four stars and high level recruits. But I think in general, Clemson, Bama, all the big time schools, they ate up a lot of the talent this year in the Southeast on the East coast, more so than even usual. And so we have a small class. There's low talent in Virginia. We were six and seven last year. There was an SI article about fractures within the program. We are still rehabbing that. And so it's a perfect storm for a class that is now ranked number 61. But I will say, I give them big shout out for getting the guys they got this week. Because if you miss on Brian and you miss on Wooten, you know, now you're, now you're hurting even worse than you thought you were. So it was a nice day because of the Bryant pickup and a nice week because of the five guys that we got. All in all, um, I, I'm not thrilled about the level of the class on 247. But that's not the be-all, end-all. And if we do trust our coaches' evaluations, uh, it will be better than that 60 mark. To your point, a lot of there wasn't a lot of Virginia talent as much in most years. as This year was a little bit... It was smaller, quite frankly. We only had one Virginia signee today. If you look through, I had to write down all the states because I started getting blown away. So... Going from the highest rank to the lowest rank, Texas, Texas, Florida, Georgia, Maryland, Tennessee, Kansas, Virginia, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Connecticut. That is bizarre. And it also shows a lot of work being done by the coaching staff, even to put this class together. They had to go all over the place to, to even make this happen. And I think the the second thread line that I have and is we said we wanted to be bigger, this will tie into the coaching news that we're going to get into, that we have a different thought of how we want to play D-line now. And I thought this class showed it. I mean, they, we don't have huge guys, but there's some size at you know the four defensive ends that we're bringing in, 255, 232, 230, 240, you know, guys with stature that I think also look at least from my eye that can carry the weight and actually bulk up if they need to. So I'm not trying to just kind of wash this away to a small class or anything or not available playing time. But I think it has narratives around it that make the 61 not look as bad. And not everybody can be a diamond in the rough that you recruited or saw, but Fuente faced it full on in his press conference because he knew it was going to be a talking point and he didn't shy away from it. And whether his answer is right or wrong, we will find out over time. But he had an answer for it and he addressed it and he didn't avoid it, which at least makes me feel a little bit better. And that answer is essentially, we took lower recruited guys, lower star guys, because they will be willing to accept not getting on the field right away and will develop and then get on the field later in their career. That's that's more of what it is. The the lower and this isn't the case all the time, but the lower the star ranking, the lower the recruit, I guess the lower the ego is is the thought process here. Um and, and that's not a hundred percent and that's not across the board. But if you're a four star, top two hundred, top one hundred guy, you are not going to want to sit and you're probably going to transfer out in the first year. And I'm not saying that it means we could have gotten one of those guys. I'm just saying that's what it looks like to 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 us is that we took a bunch of low guys because 
we have a bunch of very good players, established players, young players who are already very good, and now we can develop these guys. And and we'll see if that's the case. I would you just add on the- to that, just because you brought up a great point. Look at the narrative that Virginia Tech's coming off of with all of the transfers, with all of the off-season issues, with all... If you're a business owner, I always compare it to things that I actually know a lot more about. You want in those types of situations, the person that's going to stick around, the person that's not going to transfer right away, the person that's not going to worry that much about it and it'll actually be team oriented. It, it, it doesn't look great on paper, but it makes a lot of sense is probably where I'm going with it. And it, I would love to see this just riddled with four and five stars and just be, you know, be happy that we just got a bunch of guys. I would also imagine quite a few of those guys would be gone in a year because the transfer transferring has become just normal course or at least attempted. So it, it makes sense. It's not great, but I, I come away feeling okay about the strategy. If it is in fact the strategy, I hope it is. And if it's a one-off and, and like you said, it's going to link in to the coaching changes. The, the reason we're making coaching changes partially is because of the 61st ranked recruiting class and that that is cannot be um, denied or should not be washed away that that is absolutely what happened with coach burden and coach mitchell because coach mitchell had two stellar corners and he always kind of seemed like not a perfect fit with the staff you kind of heard whispers about it last year but like he put out a great product this year after being so poor the year before and he still got fired so what does that say that says the recruiting must not be so good and me i could be wrong i'm trying to read between the lines here and coach burden who is supposed to be our plug for the 757 um he is gone as well so i'll just i'll just leave it at that let's get back to the point you made about the defensive ends in this class we took four defensive ends they're all six three or taller we're getting bigger six total defenders in this class were six three or taller on the current ra- roster we have five defenders that are six three or taller so we have more in this class alone than on the entire roster currently we wanted to increase our size and and we certainly did bryant was the big get i mentioned him he's the only four star in the class he was once an lsu commit decommitted from them about a month ago he had 20 power five offers Wooten, 11 Power 5 offers, including Wisconsin, Utah, and Cal. Beatles, he had an LSU offer as well, and and 10 other P5s. Um, and Bailey, not the highest recruit on here. He had 17 P5 offers, according to 247. Again, including LSU, Oklahoma, Oregon, and our rivals UVA. So all those defensive ends seemed pretty sought after. I know offers seem easier to get these days, and and a lot like Nebraska puts out like 400 offers a year. So it, well, they it, have to, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but still, if you see a guy with 17 power five offers like Bailey, I, I'm surprised he's in the 84s in his rating. Cause uh, obviously people were after him. We also took four running backs. You mentioned Herbert, which I am pumped about him. He does look explosive and he had Puka Williams in front of him at Kansas and he wanted more carries. But I looked at his stats for his career. He has over 1,700 yards in his time at Kansas. I mean, he he did not sit the bench. He he got a lot of carries. This year, he chose to redshirt. Otherwise, he probably would have had a, a pretty damn good season. I think he had several hundred yards. I, I mean, he had almost had 200 yards against BC alone. So 
Uh, I'm excited about Herbert, and I'm excited about the size of Brunson and Lee. They're both over 200 pounds already. Lee is like 225, the Juco kid. So I think the writing is on the wall for some of the running backs that are in the program. Uh, yeah. I think that's what that means. Yeah, I think that's fair. It, and some of it might be the writing in the wall is they're putting the writing on the wall, right? They want to move on. So when we say that, it's not just, hey, the coaches are saying go somewhere else. Some of it might be that they want to make moves or they don't want to continue their careers or whatever the case may be. But taking that many running backs, I think, is indicative of what's probably going to be some shakeup in in the you know you kind of want six to eight guys i think is it seems like the right number to me if you're thinking about turnover year to year who's going to be graduating uh, that and that's including like people that will never see the field right that's yeah, how the backups stock. the freshmen yes yeah i, I yeah. understand what you mean so uh but we don't have room for four more guys coming in and keeping that number. I don't think so. I think there's probably going to be some attrition that we come to see over the next month or so. Mm-hmm. Probably so. There was a couple of nice safety prospects in this class in Rudolph and Jenkins, and they were both six three. They were the other two six three guys, and a really nice wide receiver commit in Tyree Saunders. We have a bunch of wide receivers in the program, but. Uh, you've seen some guys develop and some guys haven't. So it's you always want to keep keep some more coming. And then some developmental blockers, I'll put it, in uh, Clements Moore, the two offensive linemen, and then Penne, the tight end who signed today and I guess announced today or yesterday. And he, he's from France. He's only been playing football for a short time, and I guess they really like his upside. And uh we did need another tight end in this class. So 15 commits and the one transfer. So 16 guys coming in. Uh, we've set our piece on, yes, it should be higher. And I think it will be higher. And I think the changes to the coaching staff uh, are in direct response to uh, a, a class that had some misses uh, in, in recruiting. Um, I don't know if you have anything else to say, a final thought on the class. No, this will bridge into our next conversation, which is the coaching moves. And that's just that Wooten, uh, the the statement from him was that Tap was the one that kind of won that over with you know his mom and things like that. So it kind of ties directly into our next segment and what we're going to talk about in... That's pretty quick to, to have an influence. It is. To, and some of that might have been behind the scenes. I don't know if it's came out whether when that happened or uh, well, what think the case about, may Well, think be. about the fact that we just got Wooten and Bryant, two defensive ends, two of the better recruits in the class. One is the best. And we don't even have a D-line coach right now. <laughs> well, and Tap got one of them and the and the – the one coaching change that everybody was most concerned about landed the other and yeah. we'll get into Lechtenberg. So he was the primary recruiter for him. And um, there were some other changes in other programs that ended up helping that uh, to us, but he was the biggest, at least that I read and I saw on whether it was Twitter or message boards or otherwise the biggest, what the heck is going on. And he landed our top recruit in the class. Let's take a quick beer break before we move on to the hires and then the bowl game. So, Pete, what are you drinking over there? I am drinking the Ithaca Beer Company Fugly Sweater. 
Yeah. <laughs> I like the, the name of the beer a lot. It's a dark lager brewed with ginger, cloves, nutmeg, and cinnamon. So it's kind of almost like a pumpkin beer because it's got all those like spices in it, you know? Yeah. But, um, but it's got that dark lager, Christmassy, cold weather feel to it. Uh, I've, I've had a few things from Ithaca. That seems like a pretty solid brewery. This one is good. I, I like it a lot. I'm not sure if you're a big fan of the the dark lagers. I know you like your your porters and your stouts, but it it kind of drinks like one of those a little bit. It's a little bit lighter than than a stout, but um, but yeah, very dark in color. You can taste the nutmeg. You can taste the cinnamon. Uh, I I almost want just a little bit more of that spice to it, like just just a little bit more. But it's a solid beer. I'm enjoying it right now. What are you drinking yeah. over there? So the lagers are usually not for me, but. I, I might have to try that one out. Sounds good. If it's got some spice in it, I and I can affiliate it with you know a Christmas ale or something along those lines. I might be I might be on board. So I'm drinking. It's a uh, Java Latte Cold Brew Milk Stout from Victory Brewing Company, uh, up in your neck of the woods. Victory is up in Pennsylvania. It's eight point three percent. I'm not a big cold brew guy, but it's a limited release. I saw it on the shelf. Unfortunately, I didn't get it cold enough, but it is delicious. It is, it's like when you go to a coffee shop and I usually just get a regular coffee black, but like every once in a while you go in, you're like, you know, I'm going to get something a little bit, a little bit crazy. It's like got a little sweetness to it, probably a little milk in it. And you're like, this is like dessert. This is not actually what I was just coming in for, which was a caffeine pickup. I like this a lot. It's I'm drinking it a little bit on the warm side, but it is very, very good. What's the name? The Java what? It's the Java Latte Cold Java Brew. Latte. Okay. Cold Brew Milk Stout. I know that's a lot. It's Victory Brewing Company. I've and had their their Java Cask. Which is like it sounds. It's it's a coffee beer, but it's I think made in a barrel of some kind, probably a bourbon barrel. And that one was extremely powerful and and almost for me like too much. But that 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 over there sounds a little bit more uh, delicious. <laughs> no, and it's I mean it's eight point two percent. Sorry, but okay. it does not taste anything like it. It tastes like you know when you're taking when you're drinking. Irish coffee, if you do that with your family during the holidays and you just throw Baileys into your coffee, it tastes like that, but it's got it's got eight point two percent power behind it. <laughs> I like it, man. So the defensive coordinator hire for most schools might not be such a big deal, but we we talked about how at Virginia Tech replacing Bud Foster is was gonna be difficult. And they decided to go with Justin Hamilton to fill those shoes. It was a little bit surprising. We had talked about the possibility of Barry Odom or maybe a Torian Gray coming back to Virginia Tech, going out and getting someone outside the program like uh, Schumann from Georgia or someone from Clemson. But they promoted from within a guy who played for Tech when we were both in school. He played many different positions, just got promoted to a position coach last spring i believe he was interim and then he was made final at some point uh as the safeties coach and now he's made a meteoric rise to defensive coordinator and it shows you how much justin and wit and i guess the program in general just believe in this guy 
this shows this hire shows a lot of things. Um, if you didn't follow it very closely, you didn't see this coming from a mile away. If you are a nerd like us and you're on message boards and Twitter all the time, there were rumblings about how talented he is, how good he is with recruits, how good he is with the players. And I know those are all things tertiary to what can you do on the fields. And I understand that, but it was a surprise, but it was not completely out of, out of nowhere. Bud Foster came out to a few people privately and I think publicly and said he thought the right person was already on the staff in the program. And you could have taken that one of two ways. That was either Charlie Wiles or that was Hamilton. I don't think there was another option that anybody really saw. It shows not only the trust in Hamilton, but it shows a trust from Witt and from Fuente. Uh, Not a trust, but an understanding of what it means to get back to grassroots Virginia Tech football. And I say get back. We had Bud, but to, I guess keep entrenched in the program yes that it was that important it was a little surprising because he is young and resume wise he isn't worthy of the job and i'm not saying that he won't do the job well but you look at his resume he's been a p5 position coach for less than a year he was a defensive coordinator in d2 this is you you have guys like torian gray toiling away as a position coach in d1 football for a decade, more than a decade, plenty of guys like him. And there are certain guys with a charisma, with that star that you can see that warrant getting a job they might not be worthy of resume-wise. And and you always talk about business. That happens in the business world all the time. And sometimes a young guy, you can just... Fuente saw him on the staff this year. He's like, that's the guy. And And... I'm cool with that because the upside is absolutely huge. He's engaging. Like you said, the players love him. He should knock recruiting out of the park. Recruiting was not Bud's strong suit. He was a legend, but it was just not something he he wanted to do as much or was potentially as good at. Um, Hamilton has a chance to be an ace recruiter uh, just, just from his personality and his presence. And that's, that's the feeling we're getting. We also heard that teams like Clemson were trying to poach Hamilton. So all of this kind of leads into, he was probably going to always be the guy. However, when Odom came on the market, I think the tires were kicked and the price tag might've been a little too high no, because he's making $1.2 million at Arkansas now. He didn't get the Memphis job, but we always knew paying him was going to be a challenge. And he, and because Bud was making a million or so, and we didn't really want to have to do that again for our defensive coordinator, at least not right now. And getting Hamilton, a guy who you can pay a little bit less because he has no experience, you can afford to fill out the assistance with a little bit more cash. Uh, I would add to that a, a couple things in that, Coaching at the college level has really matured for the better. And I think it has, Lincoln Riley was not on paper ready to take over that Oklahoma team. And I'm not comparing us to these programs. Ryan Day, most people thought, got handed the keys to a Cadillac and he's done great. Coaching used to be this, 
you know, you start as the ball boy and then you work your way up and you do your time. And then eventually you just get promoted because you've been doing it for a long time. And now it's your time to get promoted. I think college football has become so critical to the financial success of athletic programs and that they, they've been forced to adapt to what is the, the right thing. Like inside of a company, if you have a rising star and he's a couple years young and he's going to look and doesn't look like he has much facial Our hair. Our buddy Eric but Neander. Really, yeah, Eric Neander. There you go. Who's now just won GM of the year and he's our age. We're 36, right? And he just won GM of the year. People are coming around to the fact that you can be young and talented and learn quick and there might be some stumbling blocks early, and there will be. And I guarantee there will be in this program with him at the helm. But the upside can be so substantial. And it's actually a credit to college football that athletic directors and coaches are starting to realize this. And it you're makes- seeing it in the NFL as well. I mean, Sean McVay was the head coach of the Rams at 31, I believe, when he started. He took him to the Super Bowl last year. And it shouldn't matter what your resume is, what your age is, uh, if you can do the job. And so it is a little bit of a risk. Odom would be less of a risk for sure. And I think would also have a great recruiting impact and all that kind of stuff. But who knows how serious that ever was. I'm happy we stayed in-house. That shows a whole different thing. And that, hey, if I go to that school maybe I can get my rep up and get a bigger job. They're willing to do that at Virginia Tech. And and that could be beneficial down the road. I'm I'm excited about it. I, I want to see what happens on the recruiting trail with the defense next year. Maybe he'll put a little bit of a different twist on Bud's defense, which has changed over the years, even though we always think that it doesn't. I mean, <clears throat> the whip linebacker, it's not the same as it used to be. There's a lot of minor differences, and now we're getting bigger at the defensive end spots and maybe bigger at the defensive tackle spots too down the road, which Wiles always had a had a thing for those smaller D tackles. But we'll see how all of this changes under Hamilton, and I think it could not necessarily change for the better, but keep the VT tradition of strong defense alive. And we would not be doing it justice if we didn't bring up one of the biggest points. And this was the first thing I thought of. And I said it into the car as soon as I said it was him is Bud is going to do a lot more in his power, not to make sure or to make sure that this does not fail. This is one of his guys. This is one of his players. This is somebody that he vouched for. And I want Bud to go right off into the sunset and go fish every day and do everything. I also knew or I think I know is the better way to put it, that he's going to get bored and this keeps him enough occupied and Hamilton can pick up the phone any time of the day or night and give Bud a call and get advice and get coaching from him. And if you brought in Odom, that would not have happened. Or any outside guy, because that, that would be awkward. If you got, you got your brand new defensive coordinator and then he's supposed to like, answer to an advisor who is Bud Foster. Like that would, that would be odd, but this is a, a mentor and a protege types relationship. And it seems like Bud is essentially going to be on the staff for the next couple of years to help with game planning, not day of stuff, but during the week stuff, which is awesome because that's such a huge resource for Hamilton to have. And you saw with the transition in the running backs 
and the coaching kind of getting swapped around that we act actually added an extra coach on defense, which makes sense. Cause you, you want to give your young defensive coordinator as much support as possible. Where did, cause we had Lechtenberg mm-hmm. as to player personnel. We moved him to running back coach, but we didn't replace the development person. So we, we essentially created, one. yeah created an extra coaching position on the defense. That's what Daryl Tapp essentially took because he's an assistant. He's not a DT coach or a DE coach. He's a defensive assistant. He probably will primarily help with defensive ends, but we're going to bring on an actual D-line coach in the not-too-distant future here. Yeah, and Tapp's going to be able to, and we're probably doing a disservice not (laughs) not because we got other coaching moves that we're going to hit on, but... The, the narrative around Tap, at least what they said, was they want him in there, not with a set position. They want him rotating. They're, they're building okay. him up for the future as well. So he's going to be rotating around the defense, getting exposure. Obviously, he has talents, and he'll, he'll apply those. But it's we freed up a spot, and it probably leads to the other two coaches that we need to talk about, which is right. Lechtenberg and uh, honestly, the biggest hire that we made higher being not a promotion, Tracy Clays. Yeah. Tracy Clays comes over from most recently Washington state. He was the 2018 defensive coordinator of Washington state under Mike Leach. And before that he was with Jerry kill at Minnesota among other places, but Everywhere he's gone, his defenses have performed. And there's been some stuff with Clays. There was kind of a disagreement between him and some of the staff at Washington State. Maybe didn't end so pretty. Um, there was Remember when the Minnesota players like held out or yep. whatever? He was part of that. Like, There's been a couple weird things, but he's not the def- defensive coordinator here. He's going to be the linebacker's coach, and he knows football. And I, I'm, I'm excited about the hire. Uh, if you looked at what he did at Washington State, like they were phenomenal. Read the press release that Virginia Tech put out on Tracy Clays and Daryl Tapp when when that went down last week. You were like, this is the guy I want coaching on our defense. Yeah, it, quite frankly, he's overqualified by far to be in a program coaching linebackers, which some people want to take that as a negative. Like, yeah, he's just a, a, a jump off spot. I don't care. Right. Yeah. Like I want good coaches. He is a good coach. I hope, you know, there were some things in the past. He felt like he wasn't getting support from the program, but there is no doubt that he is good. And it's tying in this thought that Kill is now he had he did things for the running backs that we hadn't seen in games before. He came in, he reevaluated things, and it improved. There's no doubt about that. Now we're seeing him pick out somebody that he's worked with prior and that he thinks is good. It may go up in a ball of flames, and that's quite possible, but at least most of the moves make sense. Like, if you if you look past... I mean, bringing Daryl Tapp back, uh, we could transition to that. That is, to me, just a home run. He was coaching at Vanderbilt. He was like a special teams coordinator or assistant at Vandy. So he was coaching in Power 5 football, and he was one of our best defensive players we've ever had. They, they talk about him still and how much he carried the lunch pail and just was everything Bud wanted out of one of his players. And he also is, 
he's our guy. I mean, he was in school all four years that I was in school. Yeah. And so I watched tons of Daryl Tapp from the stands. I love that guy. In fact, when me and you went to the Miami game last year and we stayed in your seats, he was the one that did the between third and fourth quarter pump-up speech. Yeah. And he was very fiery, but we rode the elevator up a couple times with him that day. Um, I'm excited that, that he's that he's back because him and Hamilton, they were they know exactly what Virginia Tech was like when it was rolling because and and that's when we were in school. Like it was absolutely recruiting was rolling. The team was winning just about ten games every year, and they know what it's like to be big time. And I'm not saying I like to live in the past and, and we should have definitely brought in VT guys, but it's nice to have a couple around. I think my kind of closing argument on the coaching staff moves was one that I think you agreed with. I talked a lot about, we talked a lot about with Joe. I think we've talked a lot about it with a lot of people, which is Virginia tech was starting to deviate slightly from what made us a great program. And these coaching moves, I think, pull us back to foundational Virginia Tech football for better or for worse. I think it's for better. And I think a lot of people out there feel that way. And if you wanted that, you just got it. You literally just got it with tap coming in and with the uh, the hand move. Let's quickly um, mention on Lechtenberg. He was promoted to the running backs coach. And when I interviewed Josh Oglesby a couple weeks ago, he said, running backs coach, easiest job in the world. <laughs> and I, and that's what I kind of have always thought, but it's nice to hear one of our former running backs actually say that. So my, my point is, Lechtenberg's strengths may be player development and recruiting. He doesn't have to be a great running backs coach to develop the guys at the running back position, get the running game going. We we have Jerry Kill in the house who has helped with that. But like actually coaching running backs, it's there's not that much science or technique to it. It's hey, you know how to run, you know how to cut, learn the plays and carry the football and don't fumble. I mean that that's that's what a running backs coach is. So from that standpoint, we don't lose anything from like a pure coaching standpoint. But from a recruiting standpoint, this could be a huge win for us because we've heard that he is a an up-and-coming recruiter. Yeah, and I will also I also take the counter to that, that he also played running back at a okay. really great time during Virginia Tech football running back. So I had the exact same thought that you... You're saying you know, Oglesby, yeah. Yeah, like, the two guys that were running ahead of him were... It, it made it really easy for, for whoever was coaching. You could have... You could have put you or I out there, and that's probably the worst you could get, and those guys still would have been productive. But I I do agree with that, and I think the upside of him on the recruiting side and keeping him around, because who knows? He could have been willing to jump. He could have moved. He could have gone somewhere else. And if he really has recruiting chops, maybe we kept him in a position that he could do the most benefit for the program and the least damage to the program simultaneously. I That's a great way to put it. And, and and he could be a great running back coach. I wasn't trying to besmirch his running back coaching ability, but I don't think that Lechtenberg played at a D1 level maybe ever at running back. So I'm just trying to like quell the fears that like he doesn't know how to coach running backs. 
I don't know how to coach running backs, but I'll tell you one thing. Like you said, if I was coaching David Wilson, you'd think I was a great running backs coach. Um, let's move on to the guys we're still waiting on. We're still waiting on the new cornerbacks coach, and we're waiting on the defensive line coach. The CB coach, the interim CB coach is Pearson Prelude. Again, another former player, not quite from our generation, but I think he graduated in 98, played in the NFL. And then the D-line coach, we're not exactly sure who it's going to be, but people have been talking about the defensive line coach from the Bills. Yeah, that's the rumor out there. I don't know. Hats off to whoever either got that started or has enough info to know that, but it would be a hell of a hire. It would be a really good hire. So yeah, we'll- He coached with Fuente at Illinois State way back in like 06. So there, there was a connection there. Like you said, I'm not sure exactly who uncovered it, and I don't think it was behind a paywall. <laughs> I got worried about that earlier this week, but uh, Tierlink from the Bills is the name that's emerged for the D-line coach. We'll see if it actually plays out that way. There are some whispers about Cornelson and Vance Vice, uh, and once the playoffs end and then the NFL playoffs end, we'll get full answers to all of this. I know some people want corn gone real bad and uh, we'll see. I I would expect him to be the offensive coordinator next year. I I I would expect that. I'd expect the same. And I think if vice leaves, I think he's going to get pulled. I don't think he's going to get pushed. Uh, And so he's recruited really, really well for us. Yeah. So some people have questions about the way that he teaches and the way that he has the offensive line set up, but there's no doubt about the way that he has recruited. So I would expect that somebody hiring him away. And if that happens, there's only so much we can do. Yeah. So I had the ranks from the end of the year for Virginia Tech, and this is kind of moving into our bowl game preview. We were 40th in the S&P Plus when it was all said and done. 60th on offense, 38th on defense, and 40th in special teams. Sagarin had us at 43rd, Collie at 45th. If we had beaten UVA, we probably would have popped into the top 30 in in all of those uh, rankings. Some of the best places we were on the field, 7th in red zone conversions. I thought that was pretty amazing. 7th in the country in red zone conversions, 49 scores in 52 trips. 14th in sacks per game. So Saxburg making a little bit of a reemergence this year. 17th in opposing completion percentage. That was the corner play we talked about. And then 26th in passer rating. And that was really a credit to Hendon Hooker and how well he passed the football in limited attempts throughout the end of the year. Yeah, and I think from a statistical standpoint, red zone conversion has a high, high um, – Indicative luck nature. For, yeah. Well, no, not even so much luck rate, but it's usually indicative of, of being able to win games. So I hope that keeps up with it. It's actually something that is pretty important, I think, in uh, Bill C's analysis and what he does for teams in terms of their offensive efficiency and things like that. Being able to get into the red zone and convert. Uh, I well, think what it also big. indicates is that we had a reliable kicker this year because yeah. we were 39th in TD percentage but seventh in overall red zone scoring. So we we kicked a lot of field goals and made a lot of field goals in the red zone. Yeah, unlike Alabama. That's right. Let's go to the bowl game. Said earlier, we're playing in the Belk Bowl. It's December 31st, New Year's Eve at noon, and we're playing Kentucky. 
At first, it looked like we might be playing Mississippi State. That was the announcement. Then it was UK. Then it was Tennessee. And then it was UK again. And uh, I think some of us kind of wanted the Tennessee matchup just because of the proximity of the two schools. Uh, but it's it's Kentucky, and it provides an interesting matchup. Not one I'm necessarily looking forward to too much, but an interesting matchup nonetheless. I would expect both fan bases to represent pretty well in Charlotte. Yeah, and Mark Stoops is a great coach. He has been named a lot of times in hires. The FSU hiring gig, the, his name came up multiple times around there. So did his... <laughs> Bob Stoops' name came up in that early on. <laughs> yeah. um, but Bob Stoops is the new Gruden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but but Mark also came up in that. A great defensive coach. And the UK game, it's kind of unique, right? I think it's... We did not put ourselves into a bowl game and a massive kind of New Year's Six or anything along those lines this year. So... We went to the Belk Bowl. I think it's kind of fun to play a team that we don't get to face very often and see a unique matchup. That's what makes bowl games fun for people, I believe. And it makes it fun for me to see a new team. And we'll get into this, but this is a very new team in the sense of the way that they played football in the first half of the year versus the second half. One of the strangest years for UK football or just about any football team from, from the Wildcats they were seven and five this year, three and five in the SEC. Uh, but they did go ten and three last year, and they had some really good NFL talent on that team and a great defense. They finished twelfth in the AP poll just a year ago, and they beat Penn State in the Citrus Bowl. This is actually their fourth straight bowl appearance, which for Kentucky, it's similar to Duke, not just in that they're primarily basketball schools, in that they never used to go to bowls. <laughs> ever, ever. You know, I mean Kentucky has a history from the 60s or something. I think they have a national championship at some point uh, back post-World War II, but still really far away. Uh, But they haven't been good, this good, in a while. I think when they won 10 games, it was the first time in 40 years. So they're on a kind of a new trajectory under Mark Stoops, who's who's been at the helm for a while, but he is starting to really have that defense and the team as a whole humming. They finished 37th in the S&P+. Very similar marks to us across the board. 65 offense, 32 defense, 41 special teams. It's nearly identical to where we finished and a similar year in how the teams improved. They lost two QBs during the season, and that's really what the story is with this team. They had a freshman, Nick Scalzo, who was on the show QB1. He tore his ACL before the season. So they were basically down three quarterbacks, and then you enter Lynn Bowden, who was a former wide receiver, actually former wide receiver as in he was playing wide receiver before he was playing quarterback this year and was excellent at wide receiver. And they've been great the last seven games of the season on offense with him at the helm. Yeah, they kept it close with Florida, obviously a really good team. They smoked Louisville, an improving Louisville team uh, by a lot. Uh, They got beat up by Georgia, which is not all that surprising. The... The shift, I guess, for them has been from somewhat of a passing game to almost no passing game. And Bowden is, I think, I can't remember the stat of when the last time it happened was, but led the team in passing, receiving, and rushing, which is 
incredible to actually think about. And he piled up all the receiving yards in the first four or five games of the season. And he still ended the season as their leading receiver. It's crazy. They're what they're doing is they're they're using the most athletic person on the field as their quarterback. So naturally they're running the ball a ton. They're essentially an option football team. It's more of a run pass option than a triple option that Georgia Tech was running, but an option nevertheless, and they have the offensive line to do it. So with that combination of a run first power offense and a defense that has come on so strong, particularly in the last five games, uh, they're a formidable opponent. Their seven and five record, I don't think necessarily indicates how good they are. And you have to take into account it's a seven and five record in the SEC, which this year in particular was a lot better than the ACC. Yeah, and it's one of those situations they threw two passes in the Louisville game. Two total. Now it's not like they only had one completion. So I guess that's a, a nice fit. And did they do pretty well in that Louisville game? Yeah, and they destroyed everybody. They threw he threw they had multiple multiple people in there, but more on just kind of funky plays. They only threw six in the UT Martin game before that. I didn't want to keep going back because it was pretty obvious what what's going on here with this team. And yet they're they're productive with it. And it's one of those teams where you know what's about to happen, you see what's about to happen, and yet you can't really stop it. And so and at least that's what they did against Louisville. And Louisville turned it on much more, I think, with the offense over this year than they did with the defense. But they they did well in that game and they knew what was gonna happen on every single play and they weren't able to shut it down. I got a couple of stats that are going to scare you with regard to how well they're playing on the offensive side of the ball right now. They're averaging 7.7 yards per play in their four November games. They're second nationally in yards per designated run play among power five teams. So plays that are supposed to be a run, not scrambles are getting 6.37 yards per rush. That's second in the country. And Lynn Bowden in general is just amazing. His QBR is 13th nationally. If you go by, Minimum of 200 action plays. He's not qualified, and neither is Hennon Hooker. But if you just go by the guys who have 200 plays, uh, he's at 81 QBR. That is so good. He was all SEC in terms of the all-purpose position. And even though he's only hitting 47% of his pass attempts, it doesn't matter. He, he does not. That's not what his strength is. He is a runner, and they only had eight passes in the last two games, like you mentioned. He's rushed for 1,200 yards. 8.18 yards per carry, over eight yards a carry as a quarterback, and has 11 TDs, four TD TDs, and 284 yards rushing in the Louisville game alone. That was the most rush yards by a quarterback in SEC history for a single game. 284 yards. Well, now, now I'm just worried about it. It's the guy is an animal and. Could you imagine them with like a really good quarterback with him being able to run the ball? It would just not, it would not be fair. And if they had a couple wide receivers, so he came in and he has literally turned around the team and done it in a way that should be so obvious to the defense yet. Defenses can't shut them down. Yeah. The seven game thing is really amazing. The 1200 yards is great. He did it in seven games. He's the second leading rusher in the sec 
in seven games. <laughs> and that doesn't even count his, his reception yards and stuff. Uh, I mean, he could have been the best receiver in the SEC potentially. I mean, the guys at Alabama would probably have a problem with that. But he's an amazing player, and he's got this offense just going. And he wouldn't be able to do it without the offensive line. They've got essentially three all-conference guys on the offensive line. That O-line is 11th in tackles per loss allowed, so they're not letting guys into the backfield. And they're third in the country in yards per rush. The only Power 5 team better than them in yards per rush is Clemson. (laughs) So in the SEC, without the talent of Clemson, without Travis Etienne, they're the second best of the Power 5 teams in yards per rush. It's phenomenal what they're doing. They don't have a lot at wide receiver. It doesn't matter. Yeah, and... We have to do the all-name game because the second in rushing for them is Kavasli Smoke, which is... Kavassier Smoke. Like the Like, I didn't... I had heard that somewhere, and I didn't get it till I saw it, and I was like, oh, Kavassier. Yeah. Like the liqueur, like the cognac, Kavassier. That's right. It's spelled with a K. His parents are... Have to be some very interesting people, <laughs> but his name's Kavassier Smoke. It's one of the best best names ever and he has you know 610 yards six tds christopher rodriguez 515 five tds they're gonna run the ball and they probably they come out passing we'll be very surprised so let's just put it that way and their defense is even more potent i think in in terms of what they've done over the course of the year not in terms of what they've done in the limited time and the limited action that they've had and Stoops is well known to be a very good defensive mind, and they've kind of they've proven it pretty well. I didn't mean for all my effusive praise of, of Bowden to uh, to not mention those running backs, but you're absolutely right. Like they have really good running backs in addition to him. That's what makes the whole thing go. On the defensive side, twelfth in scoring D. The last three games, they didn't give up any points in the second half. In their last five games, they've given up 11 points per game, essentially, 11 or 12 points per game. So not only do they have this potent offense, but the defense has really started to play a lot better. And it was a team that lost a lot in the secondary last year. They lost Allen at defensive end, who went one of the top picks in the draft. Stoops is just doing it again, man. They're fourth in pass yards per game. Only seven pass TDs given up by this defense all season. So passing the football is going to be difficult. Yeah, and I don't. I guess it kind of starts up front, but even their DBs are good. So you have Calvin Taylor, seven and a half sacks, three forced fumbles. Jamar Watson has six and a half sacks. Their linebacker uh, DeAndre Square led the team in tackles with sixty-eight, and their DBs are really good too. When you go to Eccles, Brown, and Dort. And yeah. it's, you know, nine nine passes defended, seven passes defended. This is just a really kind of solid defensive team. And they play a lot of guys. If you look at Dort, he... They play he, a lot of guys. Yeah. When you look at Dort and, and look at total tackles, he has like 12. And he has five passes defended. And he's, in total tackles, he's like 20th on the list. It, I had to scroll all the way down to like figure out where this guy was. It's incredible. I was looking at how many guys they play and 
spreading the tackle numbers out because I was like, oh, this defense doesn't look that special. Like this guy only has got this many tackles, whatever. First of all, they're a run first team. So they're controlling the clock. There's not as many plays. Second of all, they're playing like six guys at each position. It's unbelievable. Six defensive linemen rotate and Taylor and Pascal are both really good. The linebackers are super deep. There's another six guys there. I think you mentioned Watson. He might go by boogie. I think he might be another guy that goes by boogie this year that we were playing against. But nine and a half tackles for a loss from the linebacker position. I think he was all SEC as well on um, pro football focus on one of their teams. Not not first team, but he made one of the teams, as did Taylor. And in the secondary, Eccles and Dort both made honorable mention on pro football focus. So they've got talent at all the levels. And I'm very scared of this defense because just like ours, it got significantly better as the year went on. I don't, I don't know how Hendon Hooker's going to do against this defense. It's not, a, it's not like the most ferocious pass rush we've faced, but they're just so solid across the board. I don't, you know how UVA kind of knew our jet sweep game and kind of, kind of seemed like they had studied us quite a bit. This team has a month to prepare for the game, and they've got the linebackers that could compete with what UVA is putting on the field. So I'm pretty nervous. Yeah, I would say I'm nervous as well. It's it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to put points on the board, part yards out there. And they're athletic enough. They're smart enough. They're cohesive enough, and they have enough bodies that they can rotate in and out that there's not going to be the third quarter, fourth quarter where they start to get tired because they have, they have that much talent and that much depth and stoops. He's, he's a guru when it comes to this kind of stuff. And Fuente said the same as I alluded to early on the podcast, you know, Fuente knows it. He, he's seen it and it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. They also have the best punter in the country. We, well, we have the best punter in the country, but they have the Ray Guy award winner for the supposed best punter in the country with Max Duffy. He's averaging just about 49 yards per punt um, and has a cool name. So that's one thing to keep an eye on too is the punter matchup in this game. Just getting into the overall thoughts, I think Kentucky might be a lot better than us. Maybe not a lot, but I think they're better than us. And Fuente struggles against option teams. I'm pretty sure he's 0-4 in his career versus option teams. That would be one matchup against Navy and then three against Georgia Tech. So it's not a traditional option, but I still that, – that kind of has my uh, spidey senses tingling a little bit. <laughs> no, I, I would agree with that. I, I would say of the bowl games, this one should be intriguing because I don't think this year, since they did last year – and I didn't look into this, so maybe I'm just spitballing. I don't think they graduate a lot of people this year, and we don't graduate anybody this year. So while most people are like, bowl games are meaningless, whatever, I think this one actually might have something behind it in the sense of returning players, you know, having a reason to play for the future of the program uh, on both sides. So if nothing else... Everybody says bowl games don't matter. This one might matter a little bit in terms of setting narrative for the following year. Yeah, I think it'll be pretty competitive. And Bowden is going to the NFL, but he's still playing in this game. And he knows how much it means to the Kentucky fan base because 
this year and what he did for that team after losing three quarterbacks to injury on your roster and then just taking over and becoming the leader uh, from on the field and off the field, from what I've heard, he's like a legend in Kentucky for what he did this year. And I think he wants to go out and show how much of how much he wants to thank Mark Stoops for bringing him out of Youngstown, Ohio, and all that kind of stuff. And he wants to show out big time. So I, I agree with you. I think this is going to be one of those bowl games where you don't have guys sitting out or not playing hard. I think everyone's going to play pretty hard because they know both these teams could be very good next year. And I think Stoops will have Kentucky rolling even more. They parlayed that 10-win season last year into a great recruiting class. They're they're getting even better, and and this is going to be a tough game. I think they're playing real cohesively. Their D is really good. I'm worried about how much time they have to prepare for our not-so-complex offense. I'm not sure why we're the favorites is what what it all boils down to. We're two-and-a-half-point favorites in this game. And I know we have a better record at eight and four compared to seven and five. And we played pretty well down the stretch, but so did Kentucky. Both teams are, are kind of mirror images of themselves, but just different styles of offense. Yeah, I think it's if I was in Vegas thinking about this, it's just because of how one dimensional they are. If you give Bud that amount of time, he's going to, and I know everybody's like the running quarterback, the running quarterback. Up until now, and maybe we'll all be wrong when this game comes around and they figure out how to throw the ball, they have the run, and that's basically what we're defending, is is the run and maybe six passes, seven passes in that game. And Bud's been able to figure out Georgia Tech, which is a true triple option, tough, like tough on your defensive line tough on the injuries tough on Tim settle getting his knee banged up twice during that game I still think it was three times you know you go back through all the years and this is that without all of the the casualties that can come with the triple option I think that and without Paul Johnson who is a little bit of a mastermind when it comes to adjustments and stuff like that and Bud got the best of him for a little while. And then Paul started to get the best of Bud later. So it, it's a, uh, it's a different thing because Paul Johnson isn't on another sideline. It's not the same type of, at least I don't think cut blocking style of triple option offense. It's different, but we did just see a quarterback in Bryce Perkins run wild against us. I, I know that they actually have a threat of the pass with UVA. They passed the ball a lot and that was more scrambles, but it's still a quarterback running and we just saw it you know, right down our throats. That's what makes me nervous. But you're absolutely right. The reason the line is like this, the reason we might have a chance to win this game is because they are so one-dimensional. If you can shut it down, if Bud can come up with a scheme to just rein it in completely, yeah, we'll we'll probably win. Even with their stiff defense, I I think we can win if we can have it in. But like, I'm I'm not super confident that we're going to be able to do that. They are running... At such a high clip, yards per rush against Louisville, what do you think it was? 12. It was. It was like (laughs) 12.9. It was like 13, actually. It was closer to 13 than 12. But yeah, you're pretty much right on. That's absurd. Yeah. That is absolutely absurd. I don't know what Louisville was doing, what Scott Satterfield was doing. They did not show up at all. But 
Kentucky had been doing very well even before that game. So what what makes our defense, who's still pretty young and had its issues this year, different from the defenses they were seeing? I don't know. No. Just hope for the Bud Foster in his last game, maybe? Yeah. Maybe. Well that, that, that's the difference is can Bud come up with a scheme? That's what that's what I'm praying for. And how bought in the players could be for the future of the program. I think it, that's what it's going to really show to me. I do not want to see a blowout like that Louisville game. I mean, that's a, I know it's not, but it's a rivalry game that they like got destroyed in. And that's a team that most people said had turned it around in, and were doing a lot better and they got manhandled. The run support from the safeties is going to be so key in this game. And Chamari Connor as well at the whip position. So uh, they just got to play a lot better than they played against UVA if we're going to win. And, and bowl games, final thing I'm going to say, they're so unpredictable that you can you can analyze it, you can look at the teams. I think this one is a little bit easier to analyze for the reasons you said in that both teams are young, they're, everyone's going to be playing and playing hard. But they're still so hard to predict. I mean, you'll you'll have a team that's a you know ten point spread favorite and they'll lose by 30 points like that happens every year in bowl games it's bizarre so i'm excited to watch the game new year's eve should be fun get a few drinks going early in the day um but uh yeah i'm not super optimistic about our chances but i hope bud proves me wrong all right i think that's going to do it for the podcast we covered just about every angle of vt football in the last week and a half We'll be coming back after the bowl game with a recap and then probably going into some basketball and then the actual signing day coverage. We'll get to all that in January. But for now, make sure you enjoy the holidays. Stay safe. Have fun. Um, Merry Christmas. Happy Kwanzaa, Festivus, Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate out there. You can hit us on Twitter. It's at 2DVT. On Gmail, it's at 2D or it's 2DVT at gmail.com. 2dvt.com is the website and make sure to subscribe rate and review on apple podcasts robbie do you have any parting parting thoughts let's get into these bowl games and then get into get into the offset the off season and reset and recalibrate and get ready for uh for next season it'll before you know it we'll be all energized again and it's uh it's always a blast and then when it's done you're like relieved but then february comes around and, and then we get the itch again that's right man all right and until next time go hokies